All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Today's episode is going to be super interesting, or at least it is to me, as we take on a different perspective in policy. So last week, we covered a lot of the background of psychedelic policy and drug policy in a broader sense. Um, But this week, we're going to just jump right into it today with special guest Graham Pechenek. Hey, Graham, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Really delighted to be on the podcast today with you. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Uh, I'm doing well and just super excited to talk about the different side of things with psychedelics that people don't uh, normally think about. Uh, So before we start our conversation, I just uh, wanted to give you a second to introduce yourself, uh, a little bit of your background. What are you doing now? uh, And tell everyone kind of how you got into the psychedelic space. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, like you said, my name is Graham Pachanek. I'm a patent lawyer. Um, I have a patent law firm that I started that's called Calix Law. Um, That's now uh, not only me, but another patent lawyer and some patent agents um, and a number of other researchers. So I'm really happy that we've been able to grow it and um, love being able to to share the work we have in the mostly now psychedelic space. Um, My interest in psychedelics started with my first experiences with them in college. Um, I became really curious how they work and what the science was like. Somebody introduced me to Alexander Shulgin's books, Decal and Tcal, and became really excited by the differences in the chemistry of different compounds and how they could have effects on the brain and actually chose my majors, uh, cognitive neuroscience and biochemistry, thinking at the time that maybe there was a career for me in psychedelics itself. Didn't really get any like encouragement in that. I had a some professors who thought it was actually kind of a ridiculous idea. One neuroscience professor who I was pretty close with who I TA'd for classifiers and was in her lab, um, thought that it was pretty crazy to, to do anything like that and kind of a, a career breaker. And she thought that like, even though she was curious about psychedelics herself, something she would never do because she was running a lab and teaching classes and what if she sort of scrambled her brain? So. Um, you know, I didn't really connect with a professor who could help me in that way, but she actually, because I was also interested in drug policy and had been reading a lot about cognitive liberty, suggested maybe law school was a um, potential sort of path to stay involved in, in psychedelics. Um, and so I went to law school thinking kind of naively I would do something like that before realizing it's pretty hard to pay off law school loans or make a career doing something like cognitive liberty or drug policy. Um, and so with my science background, found that I was much more in demand doing patent law. Um, and so took a job right after law school, basically working for branded pharma um, and primarily doing patent litigation. Um, so there's uh, some legislation called the Hatch-Waxman Act um, that basically uh, sets the sort of table for branded pharma and generic pharma to fight about patent rights. And so I spent a lot of time working in litigation in that area. Okay. Um, and then came back to the Bay Area where I'm from, so that was in, in New York. Um, worked a little bit longer at another firm. I did mostly sort of tech law, primarily for Google and sort of the Android ecosystem. And then uh, when cannabis was on the ballot in 2015, I had a number of friends who were interested in becoming sort of cannabis entrepreneurs or had worked in cannabis and wanted to bring their businesses sort of above board and realized there was a lot of but actually it was kind of like inventive activity going on uh, you know, with extraction, with different formulations. And um, at the same time too, there was a lot of concern as sort of big business was expected to come in the market. Like what would happen if a big company like big, uh, you know, big ag or big tobacco, Phil Morris or Monsanto came in and found ways to sort of buy up all the you know, genetics or patent rights. I'd actually worked on a case against Monsanto for a long time and sort of you know, having this conversation with many people realized that actually there was a sort of space for, for being a patent lawyer in the cannabis area to both kind of like work with companies and inventors who wanted to file patents, but also think about patents 
as a way to protect against the monopolization of the, the cannabis space by big companies. And so that's kind of a uh, I don't know, through line to the, the work I'm doing now a little bit in the, in the psychedelic space because some of those same concerns have kind of resurfaced. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess jumping ahead to <laughs> sort of how I ended up doing psychedelics work now, I mean, I, after, uh, you know, a number of years doing the sort of more cannabis-related patent work, a lot, a lot of other sort of clients that I had or people who were, you know, in cannabis started thinking about um, psychedelics and psychedelic patents. I started seeing some psychedelic patents um, being talked about um, I had continued to be very interested in, in psychedelics. I mean, I sort of had continued to follow the science and you know, being in the Bay Area, uh, sort of you know, part a little bit of the more psychedelic culture and festival mm -hmm. kind of club culture here. And so I've always been you know, really interested in the sort of psychedelic um, kind of space and, and realizing there was both these controversies arising again and then opportunities also to work with uh, psychedelic companies. So you know, that would be a, another practice sort of niche to be able to develop. And so that's primarily what we've been doing now is really working with psychedelics companies and, and still sort of thinking about, um, you know, how can we do the work that can be controversial and, and potentially have you know, sort of negative repercussions, um, but, you know, also kind of keep our lights on and, and keep the practice by, by being psychedelic patent lawyers. So it's been a you know, fun space to, to kind of navigate that tension and to be able to work in, you know, PCAL and TCAL, which, you know, I said there were books I kind of got interested in psychedelics first. Now they're sort of my main desk reference. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just really fun to have kind of come full circle. And even though I, you know, wanted to do work in psychedelics uh, and, then, and then didn't pursue it right away, I ended up kind of doing work in psychedelics almost in a similar regard to what I thought I'd be doing in the beginning, which was like working on new psychedelic drugs. Right. That's a good point is like, you know, the a lot of the patents that you're seeing are for new compounds or compounds that may already exist or new modifications of them and so you still get to reference a lot of that chemistry that you liked from the beginning so that's pretty cool yeah yeah i'd say the bulk of the work we do is like new new chemical compounds um that's you know fun to see yeah so i know that you mentioned you know how you started kind of in the cannabis industry I'm just curious, uh, what was it like back before, like the mainstream popularity of cannabis use that we're seeing now? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess I was kind of maybe in a bubble back then. Even I mean, so I grew up in Oakland. Um, cannabis, to some degree, was always a little bit mainstream. I guess where I lived. I mean, um, you know, I kind of as a teenager spent a lot of my time hanging out in head shops on like Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and probably every friend I had had like a black light in their bedroom and, <laughs> you know, definitely kind of called myself a stoner in high school. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I sort of first became introduced to the sort of questions around um, like drug policy and, and legalization around that time because in 96 in California, it was cannabis was first on the ballot for uh, medical use. Um, and I was junior in high school. I like just gotten my driver's license um, some friends of mine like joined a group where we could go and collect signatures for the ballot, um, and yeah, I mean that, that that certainly was you know part of the reason why I thought like law school would be a good way of sort of continuing along that path a little bit too. But um, yeah, I mean th things definitely have changed since then. I mean even though it was you know, obviously part of the kind of air even in Oakland, you know we'd still like go smoke behind a dumpster and you know, if you're going to a convenience store thinking we'd smell the weed would be paranoid and, mm -hmm. and now if I like go over to my aunt's house she like you know offers me like goji berry flavored cannabis princess <laughs> deals so you know it's certainly gone from kind of a subversive sort of stoner subculture to like just part of the broader culture um so that's that's certainly changed yeah and I know you so you said uh one of the things that you first uh worked on was uh, you mentioned the case with Monsanto and uh, cannabis. So do you see like parallels from kind of that situation to some of the work that you're doing now with the psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, definitely like I described a little bit, the sort of controversies are there in many parallel ways, you know, with a you know, new industry starting um, questions about like, you know, who, who's going to have the patent rights, who's, who's going to be able to control the, the industry, who's going to profit, who's going to be able to, um, you know, benefit and who's going to lose out. You know, these are always questions in the cannabis space. Um, 
And, you know, the, the sort of broader parallels are there too. I mean, the way medicalization might lead the way toward broader legalization in adult use. Um, I mean, ho hopefully not on the same sort of timeline. I mean, it was, like I said, 96 <laughs> when cannabis was on the ballot for medical use and two decades later in California, um, Prop 64. So right. hopefully it's not another like generation until, you know, what's, what's happening now with uh, states like Oregon and Colorado lead the way to uh, broader use across more states. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of legalization timeframe has, has moved quite slowly. I mean, I think the first time I heard about cannabis, hopefully passing um, federal legalization was, you know, even back when I was in high school. So that's <laughs> certainly taken a, uh, a very long time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just in terms of patent activity too, you know, one, one thing I, I like to put on slide presentation sometimes is the way patent applications grew from 96 with, uh, you know, the first states having medical use when there were very few to the two decades later without use where they, they really sort of skyrocketed. And now, I mean, there's, I think saying tens of thousands of cannabis patents would not be an exaggeration. Um, wow. And similar to like uh, psychedelics. I mean, kind of how I first even got involved actually was when I had first heard about some Compass, uh, an application that hadn't even been published yet. Uh, Olivia Goldville had put it in an article, I think in 2019, maybe, or 2018, um, writing about the, the application. And it kind of made me curious. And so I made a table of like, psilocybin-related patents, which I mean, couldn't have been more than like 10 or 12. I was keeping in like a Google spreadsheet. And that kind of became what's like now on Psychedelic Alpha. And even what's on Psychedelic Alpha, I think, is barely scratching the surface in terms of the number of patents that have been filed, even on like the known compounds. And that's, you know, even getting before the, uh, you know, sort of new chemical matter of all the kind of novel psychedelics. And so, yeah, I mean, there's even, you know, individual companies now that say they have, you know, hundreds of patents filed. So. Right. Um, for those listeners who don't know, uh, Psychedelic Alpha is a website that provides um, newsletters and insights and data surrounding companies and kind of what's going on with all things psychedelics. So uh, they have a patent, what would you call it? It's like a patent map, essentially? Yeah, I mean, we call it a patent tracker. And, and yeah, okay. thanks, thanks for providing that background. Um, yeah, I mean, Psychedelic Alpha was how I was keeping up with the news in the psychedelic space until um, actually the, the spreadsheet that I mentioned, Josh Hardman, who's the founder of Psychedelic Alpha, just happened to find it on like a keyword search because it was a public Google Doc. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to me and that's how it ended up on Psychedelic Alpha. Um, and yeah, so now I, I have the privilege of sharing those um, and also working with Emerge Law Group on a legalization and decriminalization um, kind of map to tracker of all the state bills and, and local like deprioritization bills. Although well, that's like trying to keep up with patents, a very different task, a very difficult task has um, <laughs> just gotten uh, sort of you know, more and more bills uh, every, I mean, now, now it seems like every week. I mean, I guess it's the beginning of a legislative session. So it seems like a dozen things have come out in the last week or two. But, um, yeah, uh, there's a couple in Virginia, so. yeah. Um, and I know, I guess, speaking of, you know, government sessions, uh, we actually met virtually through a panel on drug policy following the DEA decision to not schedule multiple psychedelics. So um, we can talk a little bit about that and how you were kind of directly involved in the case with the tryptamines. So do you want to give a little bit of background? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad that that was a, an opportunity for us to, you know, first kind of meet and... Um, share a panel together and work together to some degree. Um, so that was really nice. And yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about this, especially because it's one of the few things I've kind of done in the last couple of years that's been outside of the you know, purely patent space. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess the first way I kind of realized what was going on was there was a, a tweet from, from Matt Baggett, who is a co-founder and CEO of one of the companies who was involved, Tactogen. Um, and he caught pretty much immediately um, a, a DEA proposal to schedule these these five relatively obscure tryptamines, um, you know, certainly not ones that are uh, commonly um, used. And, you know, things are uh, certainly 
far down the list of, you know, one would list off if they're you know, talking about the types of psychedelics they've used. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in working with, you know, some of the companies that I have as clients, I, you know, I recognize that there would be an impact because some of them are you know, like Tactogen um, doing research involving these. Um, and then also just, you know, considering the sort of what seemed like momentum moving away from the uh, sort of you know, restrictions on research and sort of in favor of loosening the sort of these restrictions and making research more easy, it seemed like a, you know, pretty sharp U-turn. And so, you know, I was concerned um, besides just the, you know, the possibility that companies working with these would have a harder time being able to, you know, contact CROs to, to do work quickly. Um, but also this, you know, might mean that there was kind of a broader precedential factor, kind of a shift in momentum the other way. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it did seem quite concerning, but also, you know, it was pretty clear to me, at least kind of superficially, you know, I'm not a DEA lawyer, but um, <laughs> it, you know, it certainly seemed like the, the scheduling proposal was not based on any real good evidence or really any evidence at all. Um, and so I was, um, you know, had been doing a little bit of work with Matt Zorn on a few other things. And um, we sort of coincidentally happened to just reach out to each other simultaneously about this um, with emails, I think, going in both directions within a few seconds of each other um, <laughs> because we both recognized how important it was. And so when we connected, um, we realized that like, you know, Matt Zorn is, is unlike me, a, a DEA lawyer and a very good one and had worked on a number of other DEA challenges um, when cannabis was successfully and a number of other things um, in the same space. And so you know, he obviously is an expert at that and would be able to, you know, to work on the substance of issues. And I had, uh, you know, a couple of clients who were interested in challenging this and, and also, you know, a really strong interest in trying to find other people who might be able to join, um, you know, especially because there's sort of a, a requirement to be able to file a challenge like this, that a company has to have a you know, material interest, what's called like standing, sufficient standing to be able to file a challenge. So we needed to find companies who had some basis. I mean, I thought we already had some, but we wanted to kind of cover all the ground of, you know, all five of the tryptamines. Um, and so, you know, I reached out to like pretty much every psychedelics company I had in my uh, Rolodex, so to speak, and every researcher <laughs> I could think of and, you know, DM'd a bunch of kind of people cold on Twitter and, you know, spent about a week, you know, speaking to people about like what the cost of trying to file a challenge would be and you know, what would be required. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, you know, my, my involvement with it, with this was kind of doing that sort of uh following the troops work but matt certainly did all the um uh, kind of strategic thinking and the, the you know laboring of the actual kind of like drafting um and it was you know really to his credit that we were able to have the da stand down uh, in the way they did which i think was you know pretty unexpected um from from kind of most people and kind of unprecedented yeah i think you know that's one of the very few times that the DEA has rescinded a proposed rule, especially for a schedule one uh, mm -hmm. compound. So, and then it was interesting because I would think maybe a week, two weeks later, um, they also took back their proposed rule for DOI and DOC, the phenethylamine psychedelics, which mm -hmm. is the one that I was um, focused on with the SSDP. So it was just a really cool, thing to be a part of and and a similar story to what you told is me and a bunch of other scientists and activists are all messaging each other emailing each other at the same exact time and, <laughs> and then ended up for, forming a coalition so to speak i guess to try to fight back so it's pretty yeah. cool yeah I, I, I do think that had a really big part to play in why the dea did decide to kind of drop that proposal was just seeing the kind of weight not only of the evidence but of the uh, the number of parties kind of amassed in favor of uh, not scheduling these. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, work, the work you did too in, in that and coming your way together in SSDP and everybody who um, came out against this was you know, really important in, in, in making it happen. Yeah, it's nice to see everyone come together for once. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it is interesting though, in the case of the tryptamines, um, not all of the companies wanted to fight against the DEA, right? You said you were contacting people that you knew that would be um, in favor of not scheduling these psychedelics, but there were some people who were actually in favor with the DEA scheduling of the tryptamines. 
Um, and I believe that was field trip, right? Is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you're right that not everybody came together. Um, yeah, I mean, I was pretty surprised by that. I mean, I get it. Like, they're you know public company. They have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders, which doesn't necessarily align with the public interest in drug policy. Um, but yeah, I mean, that they um, you know didn't didn't only uh, say that the tryptamine that they're working with, which is you know prodrug for hydroxy TIPT. Um, shouldn't be scheduled, but they, they did also say that they concurred with the scheduling of the others. So that seemed <laughs> somewhat gratuitous. Um, yeah. You know, especially because you know, it certainly wasn't necessary. I mean, Hamilton, Morris, and Jason Wallach, who were in the tryptamines case, I mean, they only started hearing on DIPT. You know, they didn't mention any of the others, or certainly say the others should have stayed on schedule one. Well, yeah, I just you know, I just they, thought uh, that was interesting. Yeah. That there's always the, there's always the other side, right? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see potentially that there's, you know, maybe a business advantage to having the tryptamine that you're working with be easier to work with and not the one yeah. that others are. And obviously, the, you know, the reason we were fighting this was because if any of these were added to Schedule 1, it could become more difficult to do research with them. It could slow you know, the research down, make it more costly, make it harder to support patent applications because they have to be supported within a certain period of time and you know, delay the ability to you know, get research further along and get FDA approval and obviously have a, uh, you know, a detrimental effect. So if that detrimental effect falls on your competitors, I suppose it's a good thing for you. But, All right, but strategy. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that, so that situation kind of begs a larger question of how do these like multiple and hundreds probably patents from these psychedelic companies affect the overall process like of influencing the policy decisions that are eventually made. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that there, like, there's a causality necessarily there, but certainly there is some correlation in that. I mean, you know, filing patents, of course, sort of signals an investment in the area that the patent covers and an interest in you know, what the patent provides, which is maintaining exclusivity over um, that area. And so, you know, companies that are filing patents protect certain things generally. Um, you know, want to protect that for themselves. And so, you know, a company that's filing patent applications on psilocybin, for instance, you know, they're, I imagine, kind of logically, and certainly just from the way that companies are set up to, to you know, protect their, their profits primarily, uh, you know, are, aren't hoping for there to be um, competition coming from, you know, from other directions. And, and so, you know, I, I think this is, at least now, something that there's not much that's openly stated. Um, unlike maybe a few years ago, most people are maybe familiar with like MindMed's CEO at the time, J.R. Ron, who mm -hmm. came out specifically against the TCREM. I think most people now recognize that's a, uh, at least a sort of an unpalatable opinion to, to take, mm -hmm. you know, whether, whether or not that they're in the board meetings, they're, they're saying it. And certainly there's been talk, for instance, and I remember David Bronner published an article about how um, allegedly a compass had contacted some, I think, researchers or professors in, in Oregon, um, telling them not to um, sort of be in, uh, come out in favor of, um, I think, Measure 109 at the time, um, arguably because that would compete, you know, if somebody can access psilocybin services at the state level with you know, potentially the market for psilocybin from an FDA approved drug. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, I certainly think there's kind of an alignment between those two things. And mm -hmm. I imagine that companies who are pursuing patents typically are the ones who are you know, hoping to have a monopoly themselves on the use of that drug or the use of that type of therapy. And so I guess before we're, we go more into like talking patents, um, can you explain to the listeners how patents on psychedelics and, you know, even sometimes like research protocols affect the science? Like this has been a question that someone's asked me before and I didn't quite know the answer, but if someone has a patent on a specific compound, can researchers continue to investigate that compound and publish on it? Or is it or is the patent just a way that causes others not to be able to lay claim and monetize a compound? Yeah, that's, and that, that is a really good question. I think that's that's something to probably have almost like a, a whole podcast on. <laughs> um, and there's, there's probably even controversial views either way, because much of the sort of gray areas, not totally settled, although it is 
pretty settled. So I, I guess I can tell you what I understand of the law. Um, and so maybe to, to back up again, just to sort of reiterate, like a patent provides exclusive use of whatever it is that's claimed. So a patent that claims a specific molecule, the owner of that patent has the exclusive rights to use that molecule. Um, and so there you know, can be exceptions, but the exceptions are pretty narrow. So there actually used to be a much broader research exception. Um, and actually <laughs> there was a, a case that was decided while I was uh, working at the first few years of uh, the first law firm I worked that kind of carved that decision or carved that exception even smaller. And since then it's gotten smaller and smaller to the point where now it's almost non-existent. So the research exception, it's only for things that are for idle curiosity or sometimes called mere amusement, but, but anything that's like within the sort of commercial, even if it's not for profit necessarily, or maybe it's done at a university or by a nonprofit, um, if it's for anything that's kind of in line with that, um, even nonprofits uh, sort of reason for um, you know being in, in business, I guess, um, would still infringe. So, you know, you can imagine it's like a, you know, a, a person who makes a compound in their, you know, their basement just to, mm-hmm. you know, try it themselves or something, but there, it can't be um, really anything more than that. There is also a, a specific safe harbor for research that's specifically for FDA approval. Um, so that actually is a little bit broader. So this is part of that Hatch-Waxman Act that I mentioned mm-hmm. uh, as a way of allowing generics to, to do the type of underlying research um, to be able to show that the drug they have is, say, bioequivalent to um, a, a branded drug to be able to bring it to the market when the patents expire of the branded company or when otherwise the generic is able to launch. So be able to do that sort of pre-launch, but it has to be specifically for FDA approval. So, you know, if you're just a university researcher and you want to use a compound, you know, not necessarily for research toward um, FDA approval of a drug, but just for some other purpose, uh, that would still infringe. So you would need a license uh, from the company to do that. Interesting. That was, thank you for explaining. Cause that's something that's come up a lot recently with the, you know, if someone has this patent for this, can we still like research it for just doing like general data collection or so that is something that I think should be more common knowledge and is not. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would say if I had to make a list too of like the, probably top 10 misunderstandings around sort of like common sense understandings that are not correct around patent law. I would put that on there because I think many people would believe that there's some sort of research exception or at least some sort of research exception for like a university or a, mm-hmm. like a non, non-profit um, university or company, but yeah, it no longer exists. So what happens if something gets double patented? <laughs> Like, uh, you know, I mean, if like two companies have patents on the same thing. Yeah, I saw uh, you posted on Twitter that this just kind of happened. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners about about it. Yeah. So I guess what you're referring to is there was a, um, going back to Field Trip, although now this particular compound is owned by Reunion Neuroscience. Um, but so Field Trip, now Reunion's lead compound is this one of those five tryptamines, 4-hydroxy, TIPT, it's a prodrug of it. So it's uh, basically 4-hydroxy, DIPT with um, this additional um, sort of decoration that hangs off that it first gets sort of metabolized in the body before um, the drug is active. Mm-hmm. And they had a patent on it that was granted um, despite the fact that there was an earlier application filed by another company, Mindset Pharmaceuticals, um, and mindset applications sort of broadly covered a whole bunch of tryptamine prodrugs. Um, and so it's maybe it's kind of too complicated to get into exactly how this can happen. Although I guess to sort of try to lay it out simply, um, like a claim to a specific compound um, to be anticipated, which are like not be novel over like a class of compounds, mm-hmm. um, that class has to be sort of specific enough that one, like by looking at it, would the standard in the law is like at once envisage, uh, a lot of patent law, like a lot of law comes from 100 years ago, but so you have to be able to like at once envisage this specific compound. But so like mindsets 
class of compounds was like, you know, so many thousands or tens of thousands of tryptamines that like nobody would look at it and say, well, of course it covers this 4-hydroxy, dipti prodrug of field trips. So right. field trip was able to get a claim to it because Mindset's application, even though it was earlier, wasn't so specific that it was able to anticipate and therefore render like not novel field trips. Um, but the standard for written support, which is what like Mindset would need to support their own claim is actually a lot lower. So you just have to have what's called like possession. Um, and then you also have to be able to like teach people to be able to make and use. You have to have some like, information in your application about how to synthesize it. Um, but that information is, uh, can be you know, pr pretty vague really. So Mindset's application was able to support them also getting a claim to this same 4-hydroxy-dipty prodrug. Um, so now um, that claim was allowed just last week and both Mindset and now Reunion will have claims to this same drug, um, the same drug that Reunion is trying to bring to FDA approval. Um, uh, like I don't know if Mindset's also developing it. So, you know, if Mindset was, then sort of it would be like a stalemate because <laughs> they both have a claim on the other person's drug and you know, maybe they would you know, find some way to sort of have a true sort of license to each other. But like now, <laughs> um, you know, I, like I, don't, I don't know what they're, um, you know, if they've discussed this with each other, if they're in negotiations or, or what's going to happen. But, you know, I can certainly say that like Mindset, you know, having a claim to this, means that like they also have exclusive rights over who can use it and they could uh, theoretically you know, sue field trip. Now, you know, I mentioned the safe harbor for FDA approval since field trips researches for uh, you know, FDA approval, um, it would be protected at least while it's sort of in this like research stage, but as soon as it was approved by the FDA, and, like if they were to try to sell it and commercialize it, then it would be infringing um, so you know, mindset has this uh, patent claim that basically you know prevents uh, reunion from being able to sell their drug if they ever got approval. At least how it is now. Um, you know, certainly as I'm, it's like it's, makes sense of this claim. So you know, I think the only thing that they could do would be to kind of launch at risk. Imagine they would get sued, and then there could be a you know, kind of a district court litigation over whether this patent claim is valid or not, where they yeah. have like nine months now, if they want, after the patent gets granted to try to invalidate at the sort of patent office administrator board. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're probably will see many conflicts like this because this sort of difference between the way an earlier patent can like both not anticipate, but also support another claim um, allows for, you know, different companies to have sort of like overlapping um, you know, claims either on the same thing or on aspects of the same thing. I mean, you can imagine a, you know, a drug as it's formulated as like a, you know, a sublingual tablet, or if it's, you know, used in some intramuscular formulation or something, you know, the formulation can have IP on it that's owned by a different company. So, you know, I think yeah. there's a lot of, um, potential, um, litigation and certainly a lot of like IP that's, uh, you know, because many companies are all chasing the same targets, you know, hundreds of companies pursuing the same sort of psychedelic uh, compounds. Um, and so, you know, there's the potential for many of them to um, be in conflict with each other. Yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of see how it plays out, not only with this specific example, but just in general as, uh, you know, the research and the development uh, progresses next yeah. year. You and others have also mentioned... Uh, how some psychedelic companies can patent not only, you know, formulations or new compounds, but even protocols for psychedelic therapy, all the way down to like the type of music played. Uh, so I was just wondering, how do you think or ha have you seen this influence um, what can go into clinical trials and eventually play a role in what gets approved for the masses? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would start by saying this, like, particular Compass Pathways patent. Um, so this, at least, thankfully, perhaps, but, I mean, it hasn't actually been um, granted. And when it was written about by, by Shayla Love and by others, it was only just published um, as, a, as a PCT application. Now it's pending in the U.S. and maybe other countries, but it hasn't actually 
been examined were resulted in a granted patent. Okay, so it's just an application. Yeah, it was just an application that publishes. I mean, you know, applications publish a year and a half after they're filed, but oftentimes it's another year and a half before they even start getting examined, uh, unless a company pays to accelerate the examination of it. So this, you know, when it was when it was published, was still a long way from from being granted. And Encompass since then, although they haven't really as far as I know, said anything about why they were pursuing these claims in the beginning or how they ended up um, including these claims. I can imagine a lot of reasons that they just sort of like ended up in a you know, PCT application that contains oftentimes hundreds of claims on many things. Maybe they never meant to pursue them um, you know, to the point of trying to get them issued, but they've since said that they're not going to pursue those or, or wouldn't um, try to get claims that they would enforce on aspects of set and setting. I think they've said a couple times now. So. Okay. Um, hopefully that like at least makes some people maybe breathe this, this kind of sigh of relief <laughs> thinking that like there's you know no way that they would be able to provide psilocybin um, therapy other than you know in a sterile clinical environment with hard wood like Adirondack chairs and you know yeah. uh, low resolution sound systems but um, it's certainly like that type of patent is you know not something that wouldn't be potentially pursued by others. Um, and I think there is a you know, concern and companies have tried to use patent applications to protect aspects of their, you know, their REMS. So when a drug, uh, or at least when MDMA and, and psilocybin and probably most other, uh, the classic psychedelics get approved, they get approved, you know, together with this risk evaluation mitigation strategies document, the REMS, mm -hmm. which provides the, uh, the conditions under which a drug will be administered. So you know, obviously people aren't taking psilocybin home from the pharmacy and you know, using it uh, on their own, but they're you know, going somewhere or they will go somewhere after it's presumably approved to take it under the supervision of uh, a doctor or a therapist or, or someone. And you know, the way that it's administered under those conditions is all laid out on the REMS. And so you know, there's a possibility for companies to try to file patent applications covering the rounds to prevent others from you know, using those same procedures. Um, and you know, that can, I think, create some issues where, especially when we'll have you know, the state regulated access in places like Oregon and Colorado, what happens when patents that cover aspects of the REMS also tend to overlap with something somebody might be doing at the, the state level, you know, is, Right. A facilitator or service center going to need to worry about whether they're infringing someone's patents on you know the way that they're providing psilocybin services, um, and I you know I don't think the answer to that now is no. I think there's you know, potential for that, and um, you know many of the companies now in this space might not be expecting to ever use their patents in that way or you know ever enforce them against uh, you know Oregon psilocybin service center, but you know as companies go out of business or you know, want to sell that their patents as assets you know they can fall into the hands of others and there's many companies in the just general kind of patent space that are you know, pursuing business strategies that really they're you know, described as like patent trolls where their their whole goal is to like sell, sue companies for uh, patent infringement and try to extract um, money from companies who are you know allegedly doing anything that's covered by it so you know, I think this is something that can be a concern as you know more state regulated markets in particular open up, but also just between companies bringing different psychedelics through FDA too, because you know obviously each psychedelic is probably going to have some aspects of how it's administered that are similar. And you know the first company mm -hmm. take a psychedelic through FDA shouldn't be able to monopolize you know, all the means of using uh, psychedelic therapy. Right. And, and I went to a conference last year that talked a little bit about REMS and how, you know, the questions arose of does a company have to file a REM for each indication or like can multiple companies file a standard REM? And, and so some of those questions that were brought up, I thought was really um, thought provoking in mm -hmm. terms of psychedelics, because like you mentioned, a lot of these psychedelics would be taken the same way. So you know, how is that going to play out when it comes time for actual FDA approval? 
Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, I think, is a really interesting question, too, and that the FDA might actually try to enforce companies, um, multiple companies using like a shared realms and providing psychedelic therapy in the same way or in a very similar way, whereas some psychedelics actually or, or some companies or some you know, sort of providers might see benefits in uh, having variations in the type of psychedelic therapy. And I think we're still very far away from knowing you know, what's the best type? Is, the, is there a best type for individual drugs? Is there a best type for different you know, indications for different types of people? Um, yeah. And so you know, we, we also wouldn't want REMS to sort of limit the amount of both like kind of experimentation in the space, but also you know, the, the type of uh, you know, ways that psychedelic therapy can be delivered. Yeah, and that could be a whole podcast episode within yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let's switch gears for a second and uh, just talk a little bit about the medicalization of psychedelics. And I know that word was mentioned uh, in the beginning, but how these biotech or pharmaceutical companies are pouring money into these clinical trials for their indications or their compounds and is is there like a better way to do this? Is this the the right way? Do you think there's anything that could be learned from the cannabis industry as we move forward with psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, those are those are all really good. There's questions. a lot of questions. And, I want tough to ones. Yeah, these are all good questions for <laughs> their own podcast too. I mean, you know, oftentimes when I get anything kind of approaching the question about like is medicalization the best route, I think to. Uh, quote I remember from Joe Green, the co-founder and I think president of the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, um, a presentation he did at Horizons 2021, where he talked about how in Oregon, the cost to get measure 109 um, on the ballot and and passed was something like five or six million dollars. And sort of raising the question of, you know, if that's the cost in one state, like how much would it cost to get psilocybin or psychedelic uh, services like that at the state level passed in, you know, in every state that would uh, be able to, you know, have the sort of political landscape to, you know, to, to pass that. Um, maybe we'll get an answer to that with all these new state bills that have just been introduced. But <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because, you know, five or six million dollars and you know, I think actually speaking of psychedelic alpha, just today was launched, although I haven't had a chance to look that I've been meaning to, but the amount of funding that's gone into drug discovery and sort of drug development and drug development, I guess, putting aside the you know, enormous cost of like phase three trials, but just like drug discovery, which is you know, many dozens of companies pursuing new psychedelic drugs, like that amount of money, if that was put into like, drug policy reform or put into changes that would allow for state level access to psychedelic therapy or you know, to even fund the therapy itself to have it have broader access to, to patients or to you know, individuals who can't afford it um, would really go an enormous way. So like just thinking about sort mm-hmm. of allocation of resources, like do we want a billion dollars or $500 million going to discovering new psychedelics or you know, would, would that money be better spent um, trying, trying to you know, change the sort of uh, the texture of uh, state level um, psychedelic access. Um, I mean, I think maybe the answer to that question will depend on you know, whether the types of new psychedelic drugs that are going now through the you know, development process will be better than psilocybin or MDMA or you know other drugs that you know, are you know, not necessary to spend all this money um, sort of inventing and patenting and developing. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, a lot of it, I think, is because of the kind of constraints that we have around how the pharmaceutical system works and how the sort of incentive structure uh, in the broader system works. So maybe straight a little bit far away from your question, but um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, in, in an ideal world, if we had enough money to, to pay for absolutely everything, um, it'd be great to have, you know, 500 new psychedelic drugs and have the money also to have you know, 50 states worth of state decrim and legalization um, efforts. But yeah. you know, thinking about like, where are we gonna put kind of the limited money? Uh, you know, it's, it's already, I think, to some degree, something of a shame that like a lot of the money that maybe could have gone towards supporting some of the philanthropic efforts, you know, we've kind of been diverted away because of 
the rise of sort of for-profit companies. And so the you know increase in all these additional for-profit companies bringing more and more cycle drugs to market, even though I'm obviously thankful for it because it's allowed me to go to my firm and pay my mortgage. <laughs> um, you know, is, right. it, is it a good thing in the long run? Um, I don't know. Is, is it better for patient outcomes and, and greater access or is it just better for you know more profit to yeah, I I think that's one of the major concerns that might that I have and that I've seen others have is the uh, issues with that just focusing on profit will have on accessibility when the compounds or whatever gets approved, um, like what implications that has for accessibility for people who actually need the medication or need the the, the psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah, I mean, that's another podcast there too, but yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and what does that mean just generally? I mean, when we're talking about access, what do we mean? Like, just will somebody be able to go somewhere and just, you know, similar how somebody can maybe get us ketamine now, you know, stripped of any sort of psychotherapy, stripped of any sort of other type of support? Um, mm-hmm. you know, what is it, how is that even going to affect the, you know, the actual benefit somebody gets from being able to even access psychedelics versus? Uh, being able to have it as you know, part of a more holistic kind of mental health um, program, which surely just the access to regular mental health services is, uh, you know, pretty poor for right. just about everywhere and just about everyone. So trying to imagine fitting psychedelics into that is, uh, yeah, it's certainly going to be pretty challenging. Yeah, and, and it reminds me of, uh, so Shayla, we mentioned Shayla Loved earlier and her piece on the Compass Pathways patent, but she also just wrote a very nice piece for Psychedelic Alpha where she kind of called for action uh, at mm. the end in regards to that, that the people invested in psychedelics think about some of these questions a little bit more deeply. And that's why I like to raise them on the podcast so people can yeah. think a little more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've got just a couple more broad questions here to bring us home. Um, so, and we've touched on this a little bit, but what are your thoughts generally on the current state of psychedelic legality? And do you think that we're actually going to see psychedelics legal in some capacity by 2024? Um, I mean, I think we'll see, well, I guess there's a lot of ways to sort of Take apart what it means to be legal. I mean, certainly by 2024, I guess we have to take apart what you mean by psychedelics too. I mean, I think <laughs> you know, reading things on psychedelic alpha, I was just reading the one that was published the day after I think Shayla's, which was Rick Doblin's. You know, he mentioned that hopefully MDMA will be um, submitted. I think with a new drug application by probably the end of this year, and hopefully approved by 2024. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll see MDMA legal at least as an FDA approved um, treatment with therapy by 2024. Um, federally legal psychedelics, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> like, I said, like I said, I mean, I, I've been hearing about, you know, cannabis being federally legal since I was in high school. So um, 30, almost years later, it's, it's hard to imagine that the um, timeline for, for psychedelics will be faster. Although, I don't know, it seems like maybe the politics of it are you know, a little bit different and I guess I can hope so um, but no I don't know I, I, I trying to look into a crystal ball because I, I for this at least I always tend to feel pessimistic just thinking about um, the long timeline of cannabis legalization but um, yeah. I'm hoping at least there's changes that make like research easier to access that you know, maybe down schedule um, you know some compounds uh, and certainly, I think you know the FDA approval of uh, MDMA and psilocybin and maybe others soon after it will um, make, especially if the benefits of these are widely accessed and kind of seen by by more people. And the momentum, you know, in the news, where now it seems like almost every article is a positive one, and mm-hmm. as long as that sort of doesn't shift around the other way, you know, there's going to be uh, you know, really huge, uh, I think. Just pressure to to try to make these more broadly accessible and hopefully legal in some way. Although I think we're still you know a very long time from you know, I mentioned um, the, you know, the sort of change in the ability to get like cannabis edibles and now pretty much everybody I know, including my relatives who probably never would have caught dead with cannabis twenty years ago or you know having a mm-hmm. deep and everything else. Like 
I don't know that we're going to see a you know dispenser in every corner with you know psilocybin chocolates, you know, <laughs> you know in a few years. But I do hope yeah. we'll see at least the integration into uh, more kind of mental health services, I guess, or you know services like an organ, which are obviously not for medical purposes, but people can still access to some degree for those and. And hopefully the kind of space, you know, one thing we didn't touch on at all, and one thing that I don't uh, touch on, at least in work very much, is, you know, the more ceremonial and, and sacramental use of, of psychedelics that I think yeah. we should see, uh, you know, broader, broader leniency towards from the federal government and hopefully broader uh, access through that pathway too, because I think it's a really important one and uh, an undervalued one by people who are really just looking at the kind of individualistic use of, of psychedelics, especially for uh, in sort of mental health therapies um, when thinking about specific disorders or conditions, um, which I think is a really good place to, to start and a, and a really big concern. But I think when we're looking at a kind of holistic uh, health of our society and our sort of group use and ceremonial settings is maybe not to call it more, more important than the other, but, but it's certainly one that's just as much up there in importance, even though I think it's talked about a little bit less. Yeah, we're hoping to do an episode with a couple folks who are, have more expertise in the ceremonial topic of psychedelics. Um, we try not to talk about it too much on here because, you know, we don't have the experience that others mm -hmm. hold. So, but definitely yeah. worth talking about. Yeah, likewise. Um, so, and I mentioned legal in some way, right? Because mm -hmm. we've mentioned a few different routes that could happen. And, and we've talked about medicalization and legalization. Um, but what about decriminalization? I guess we haven't really touched on that. Yeah. So, I mean, all these kind of fall along some well, there's kind of spectrum or yeah. there's kind of a matrix of sorts. Um, I mean, decrim itself has, you know, a few different flavors. I mean, most laws that deal with you know, the criminalization of, of psychedelics, at least most that are enforced are at the state level. You know, obviously there's federal uh, legality too of psychedelics that we've been talking about. But um, so the fact that they're at the state level means there has to be a state level change in the criminal laws for there to be a true decriminalization. Um, one thing we've seen much of is what's sometimes called decriminalization, but is really deprioritization. Um, so state, or not at state, but rather at local, whether it's city or county jurisdictions um, where bills have been passed or measures have been passed that deprioritization, the use of law enforcement resources to enforce what would be the state laws prohibiting psychedelic uh, you know, use or possession or sale. At least now in Oregon and in Colorado, most recently there's been statewide decrim, which you know, is, it's not full decrim. So even when we talk about decrim, we're talking about um, generally it goes from being something that's you know, punishable by potentially a you know, jail sentence to just like a civil fine Mm -hmm. um, and generally, it's just you know a certain amount of possession or, or use, so you know personal amounts. But if somebody is you know selling those mushroom chocolates from their house or uh, otherwise, you know they can still get in trouble. So like in Oregon, for instance, some people may have heard there was like a, a shroom shop that opened that was selling um, mushrooms, and they were shut down after not a very long time, although they were very open and notorious about their, um, you know, their sales of, uh, of mushrooms, but, you know, for people that are growing them for, for personal use or maybe growing them for ceremonial use, um, for, you know, a large group of people like that, that's generally, at least when we're talking about decriminalizing places like Oregon and Colorado, and I imagine in the sort of future laws that are either kind of like being, um, considered now in some states where they're pending or you know, would be, um, past, you know, they're covering mostly personal use, personal possession, but, but nothing that involves commercial sale, commercial yeah. manufacture. Um, whereas legalization, again, we're, you know, not speaking of the type of legalization with like cannabis where a dispensary can open up and sell psychedelics, but of course just 
uh, within a particular kind of regulated access model like uh, like Oregon, probably the most familiar. Yeah. You know, seeing a facilitator at a service center and you know, mm -hmm. um, still having services. Yeah, it seems like there is all three of those things happening right now. So yeah. it's very hard to keep up. Um, yeah, and they're all kind of a mix. I, you know, I'd yeah. probably recommend also people reading Mason Marks, who's uh, a doctor and a lawyer and been following these um, very much, is also following some of the patent issues. But has a recent article on the sort of flavors, I think he called it, of uh, kind of like decrim and, and legalization. Um, and that's kind of a helpful way, but it's it is just conceptually, there's so much sort of nuance between all of them. I think it's probably hard to put them in hard and fast categories, but yeah, um, at least there's a, you know all the kind of arrows are pointing the right the right direction um, to some to some degree, yeah, towards you know greater relaxation of the kind of rules and certainly penalties around uh, use of them. Right. So that leads perfectly into my final question for you today, um, which would be in your perfect world, what would psychedelic policy look like? Um, yeah, that's a, a good question. I mean, I think the first sort of thing that needs to happen is just decrim across the board. I mean, I think you know, the, the drug war probably doesn't need to be belabored. And um, right. I mean, you talked about it a lot well when we had the two-credit panel about the you know, obvious kind of unfairness uh, which is probably the kindest thing you could say about it, um, <laughs> the, total, the total injustice of it. Um, so, you know, I think decriminalization of, you know, all drugs is, you know, really the, the first thing in a, in a perfect world that would happen. Um, and then in terms of policy, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned like the different sort of flavors of decrim and legalization and medicalization. Um, somebody once called me um, a sort of like an optimistic pluralist and I sort of adopted that view as an easy way to kind of describe how I you know, feel about this. Like I, I tend to sort of think that like a rising tide does lift and, and hopefully will lift all boats. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the uh, sort of hopeful FDA approval of MDMA and, and psilocybin and other drugs, kind of reducing the stigma and allowing for greater sort of political will behind legalization. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I do support the like state level regulated access of what's happening in, in Oregon and in Colorado. Um, and you know, decrim, I think, would do away with a lot of uh, the, you know, the sort of the problems. Um, right. but, but I also, you know, certainly, if, you know, to, for to carve out like other sort of necessities for access. I mean, I, I certainly think that like ceremonial and sacramental use. Um, you know, it shouldn't be as restricted as I think it is now. I mean, having the DEA deciding what's sincere religious belief, I think is, you know, fairly ridiculous. Um, yeah. And, you know, I feel like responsible to, to be able to you know, use psychedelics responsibly. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I'd land on just having psychedelics, you know, fairly easily available everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it's, I think it's kind of hypocritical to say that I'm not in favor of that because, you know, I've, I've I've never done psychedelics with like a therapist or, um, you know, it's part of like a, a medical context and I've, I've generally accessed them kind of, I might say recreationally or sort of, you know, for, for personal purposes, but, you know, certainly chosen my, my own setting and, and, and I've done them wherever and I've chosen how, how I want to have a relationship with them. And so, you know, I feel like responsible people should be able to, you know, make those same decisions and, you know, make mistakes. I've certainly made, you know, made mistakes and had difficult experiences myself and uh you know i don't think that's the reason to prohibit people from doing them i mean at the same time like you know i don't have uh at least diagnosed kind of mental conditions and i'm, I'm sympathetic to people that you know do want to have the ability to access psychedelics with somebody who can really help them use them in a productive way mm -hmm. so you know i do really hope that the access for that is uh, existing and when people aren't don't have to use use them on their own or you know, have to uh, because they you know, can't access them for, for cost or for other reasons. Uh, you know, somebody who can really help them through, you know, whether it's their traumas or their, uh, you know, their mental health conditions. But um, 
but yeah, I think that's why I probably choose to call myself an optimistic pluralist because it's a hard position to describe otherwise, and so it kind of puts it in a bow and um, sounds nice without having to. to yeah. I guess uh, I don't even know exactly where I, where I fall. Mentioning <laughs> different ways on different days about like you know whether I think everybody should just be able to go down to the corner store and buy mushroom chocolates. I mean, I kind of wish I could, so I think everybody <laughs> else can too. And uh, we'll see what happens. I'll just be a little safer on the road. Yeah, I like that. The optimistic pluralist. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I've said before and in the panel, I think, you know, I think there's space for recreational use, ceremonial use, medical use. And, you know, and I don't think anyone should go to jail for just having some mushrooms. So maybe maybe there was an easy way of saying it because, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> I've had a lot of practice saying how I, how I think about it when I go home for holidays. My family asks me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. here's my one sentence summary. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Graham. It was truly a pleasure to have you. And uh, talk about some of these more nuanced things. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, I think I mentioned in the email, this has been one of my favorite podcasts of the last year on psychedelics. And so it's been great to participate myself in one. So I look forward yeah. to hearing more of yours. And um, thanks again for, for inviting me. That means a lot to us. So thanks for saying that. Um, but, yeah, have a good evening. Yeah, likewise. If you like what you heard this week, be sure to subscribe, like, comment, tell your friends, shout out from the mountaintops. Uh, We love engaging with our listeners. So let us know how we did. And thanks for listening.